Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the many blessings that you've given to us. Thank you for the reminder that we have a king who's on the throne and who's coming soon. Um, As we turn our attention to think about your plan of salvation once again, we pray that you would guide us into truth by your word, that we would glorify you as the God who's done all things well for our salvation. So help us in our understanding of your word that we might use it to our profit. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to take up our study of the Canons of Dort again on the third and fourth head of doctrine. So if you're using the Psalter hymnal, you'll find that on page 906 in the back. Um, and in the Forms and Prayers book, it's on page 271. And we're going to read the first two uh, articles and think about them together. Um, so the third and fourth main points of doctrine, you'll see that on uh, the, the heading before Uh, Why do we treat the third and fourth heads of doctrine together? We had the first head, we had the second head, or maybe we can back up and say, what are the third and fourth heads of doctrine about? If we think about the tulip, what are we talking about here? Total depravity. And what's the fourth head of doctrine? Irresistible grace. Does anyone know why we treat that as third and fourth and not split out three and four? Yeah, theologically they fit together, right, in terms of because of what we confess about total depravity, it makes irresistible grace necessary theologically. Um, it was also the case that when the Arminians stated their, their rejections of Calvinist teaching or um, their, their remonstrance against certain doctrines of Calvinism, One of their things that they said was, we don't deny total depravity, but we do think the grace of God can be refused. Um, So they they were very clear that we don't agree with irresistible grace, but they said that they kind of maintained total depravity. Um, And what what the reformers did in the Canons of Dort was to say, actually, if if you do hold to total depravity, you can't hold to your view of grace that although you say you hold to total depravity, you don't actually. Um, And so we're going to treat these two together so that we can show how total depravity necessitates irresistible grace as the natural thing that flows out of it. Um, You know, again, if, if someone really wants to argue with me over terms, and, you know, these are not terms that I think you have to die on the hill of the term, Um, But I think what we're really talking about here is the application of redemption. So redemption applied is what we're really talking about in this head of doctrine. So if if we started with redemption in that way, when we talk about election, we're talking about redemption planned, what God's plan was for redemption before the foundation of the world. Um, When we talk about Christ coming into the world to atone for sin, we're talking about the accomplishment of redemption, how redemption was accomplished for God's people in time and history. And now we're talking about redemption applied, how the Holy Spirit applies the redeeming work of Christ to his people. And who the people are that he's coming to and how he comes by by the Spirit to apply the work of Christ. Um, And so I sometimes like... Um, I was going to say shifting fire with Arminians, but that sounds a little too aggressive. Um, you're just kind of changing the way I approach it. If someone really has a problem with any of the points of, of Calvinism is to back up a little bit and just say, okay, let's talk instead about the plan of redemption. Do you think God had a plan of redemption? That can sometimes be a little less, um, you know, 
little less hostile ground than talking about election or predestination sometimes, is just to kind of change the term and say, if we're not fighting over the term, do we at least agree that God had a plan of redemption that he was working out from before the foundation of the world? Certainly, that does seem to be what passages like Ephesians 1 teach. Now, how does, how does he do that? How does the scripture teach us to think about that plan? Um, that can sometimes be easier. And, and this, too, I think is a good way of thinking about this doctrine, to think about it, both of these fitting under the broad heading of the application of redemption. How does God apply the redemption that Christ worked on the cross? Um, because Christ died on the cross for sinners, but how does that work that happened on the cross come to me? How do I become a partaker in that work? Why am I not merely a witness to what happened? How do I become a partaker in what was done there? Um, and that all has to do with who I am and how God comes to me. Um, and they're important things that we start. So as, as with all the doctrines in the Canons of Dort, they started with things that would have been of Catholic agreement, small c, right? Universal agreement at the time this was written in terms of, of Christian commitment. Um, it may not be universal today, um, but this was, these were not the controversial points that they were bringing up. And so I want to think particularly about the first two together. Uh, the effect of the fall on human nature and the spread of corruption. Again, it's kind of interesting to think that these were not really the, the disputed ideas of the day. Um, they may have become more disputed in our day. Um, but these have to do with human corruption, conversion to God, and the way it occurs. And so we first need to know how fallen are we, um, and how does, how does our God come to fallen sinners like us and convert us to himself? Um, that really is the subject of the third and fourth head of doctrine. So the first article, we talk about the effect of the fall on human nature. The man was originally created in the image of God. This is article one. Man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and all things spiritual, in his will and heart with righteousness, and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. Um, this is the, the impact of sin on the life of the believer. And this is really just summarizing what we read in Romans 3, uh, verses 9 through 18. Um, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. They have all turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, now, Paul is, Paul is specifically talking here 
to the Jews, right? He, he does that in a wonderful way in the book of Romans to say, those who are without the law are condemned. And then as he turns to the Jews, where someone might be tempted to say, oh, we who are under the law did a lot better. He says, no, you who are under the law did worse because you had the law and you didn't follow it. And all of these condemnations are quotations from the Old Testament. Paul isn't claiming anything new. He's just pulling together the Old Testament statements of what the effects of the fall have been on man. And so one of the first things that we have to do is find our pen. The second thing that we have to do is say, um, what happened in the fall? Um, and to make sure that we begin by saying, God did not create the order that we currently see. That was not his creation. Um, this is what we've done to his creation. Um, total depravity is not how we were created. How were we created? Well, we were originally created in the image of God. Um, and, you know, that needs some filling out. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, that, that's, that's a question that needs answering. So we were created in God's image. Male and female, he created them. And what, 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 is, what is the thing that makes us so different from the rest of the things that God made? Um, this is rhetorical. I'm going to answer these things for you. Um, I've already answered. I'll, I'll let you know when we've come back to the audience participation portion of the, the afternoon. Um, but what is, the, what is the way we think about the way that God has made us? What makes us different from the rest of this world? Is that we are rational creatures that we can use our minds, that we have affections in a way that the rest of what God has made doesn't. Even things that live, right? Even the things that live don't live life that's made in the image of God. Um, and what does that talk about particularly um, as this goes along? We furnished his mind. Okay, that, that part of being made in God's image is to have a mind, a mind that can know, right? That, that was one of the ways in which we are created in the image of God. Um, animals don't have minds that way. It's always interesting to me to watch nature videos and, you know, when people kind of try to make animals like people, you know, they'll say, well, look at him having fun. And I was like, yeah, he kind of does look like he's having fun, but I don't, I don't think he's thinking about it as having fun the way we think about it when we have fun. Um, I'm not trying to judge your animals, I'm just saying. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a difference, right? We, we know that there's a difference in the mind. Um, we have a will. Um, we have a heart. Um, we have emotions uh, that, that, are, that are fully formed emotions. And the, these are the ways in which we are made in God's image, right? That's how God often relates himself to his people, Here's what I'm thinking about doing. Um, right? He sometimes says, oh, I'm going to share my ideas with my friends. Here, here are my thoughts. Here's my, here's my mind on the matter. God often shares his will um, for the world with his people. Um, we have passages that give us windows into the heart of God, um, where he, he talks to us in ways we can understand by connecting with the heart. Um, we can think, you know, after the fall of man in Genesis 6, one of the exposures we have to the heart of God is that he's sorry he made man. Right? He's grieved. He gives us a window into his heart and into his emotions. 
right? Sometimes the Lord is delighted with his people. He rejoices in what they do. Sometimes the Lord is angry with his people. Now, that's not to say that God feels these things the way we do. And what we recognize is what God is doing is he's relating these things to us. But how can we understand that language of mind and will and heart and emotion if we were not created that way? Right? He's made us that way to reflect something of who he is. And even though we know that God's mind doesn't work like my mind, his will doesn't work like my will, his heart doesn't work like my heart, and his emotions don't work like my emotions, we're made to reflect who he is enough that we understand that in a way that no other part of his creation can understand that. Um, man is unique in that. Men and women are unique in that of having that understanding of God, being made in his image. And one of, the, one of the beautiful things that we say is when we were made, all of these things worked perfectly in harmony with God. Right? So we had a mind, but we were given a mind that was furnished with a true and salutary knowledge of the creator. Um, that we, when we were made, we really knew God. We, we knew him truly, and that knowledge was salutary. Um, that knowledge was beneficial. Salutary knowledge. It, it, means, it means it's somehow beneficial. It produced a beneficial effect. We knew things about God that were true and that were beneficial to us. That we were able to use them aright. That we knew him. Um, and therefore could do the things that were pleasing to him. That our, that our wills and hearts were in accord with what God wanted, right? That, that our will, we had wills and hearts, but they were filled with righteousness, right? We wanted to do the things that he wanted us to do. We loved the things that he loved. Our emotions were in purity, right? There was, there was never any, any such thing as an unrighteous emotion. Um, and we're all probably right now trying to figure out what that would be like. Right, because in many ways this is a lost ideal for us. Um, to know a mind that knows the true things of God and always, that always produces a beneficial effect. To have wills and hearts that are just filled with righteousness. Um, to have emotions that are, that are filled with purity. That's the, that's the glory of how we've been made. That's the glory of how we existed before the fall. Image bearers of God in perfect harmony with him. Uh, you know, as the catechism says, is that we could rightly know him, love him, and live with him in, per in perfect blessedness. That's how we were made. Um, and so nothing that's happened in the world happens on account, it is ultimately to be laid at God's footstep, at God's feet as if he's the one who ruined the mind, the will, the heart, and the emotions of his creation, um, what we say is that we ruined it. Um, because having been made this way and having a true and salutary knowledge of God, having wills and hearts that were filled with righteousness, having emotions that were filled with purity, we gave that up. We decided we were going to take these things and act against God. Um, that we were going to rebel against him um, at the devil's instigation. Um, and by our own free will. 
Was anybody kind of shocked to read in a Reformed document us confessing free will? Um, so you can keep that in your back pocket and say, no, we believe in free will. I believe in free will before the fall. Um, and even though the devil is the instigator, you'll see, um, the devil is not the one responsible for the rebellion. The devil's the instigator, but man is the rebel when it comes to the fall of man. You can't blame the devil for what was done. He's the instigator, but he's not the rebel in this picture. Man is the rebel. Um, now the devil is also a rebel against God, but the point here is in the fall of man, the devil is an accomplice. Um, you know, in, in hockey now, you, you, can be, you can be penalized for being the instigator in a fight. Um, and so now they agree to fight beforehand, and then that's why they now just drop the gloves and start fighting, um, because nobody wants to get charged with an instigator penalty. Um, now that's more about hockey than you probably wanted to know. Um, but that's maybe one of the few places we still use that word a lot, instigator. You know, if, if you're the one that, that starts the fight, you get charged as an instigator. Um, and that's what the devil did. The devil kind of, you know, skated up and dropped the gloves a little bit and was instigating, but he's not the one that did the work. Um, and that's what we're saying here. It was man out of his free will, out of everything that God had given him, um, he's the one who decided to do the rebelling. He's the one who chose to rebel against God. Um, and th this can be a helpful way for us to talk about free will because we can, we can point out, you know, when we were made in God's image and we're as perfect as we can be, um, this side of the, the redeeming work of Christ, we were perfect in our creation and we still could not use free will to our profit. We had free will and we used it against our own interest uh, at the instigation of the devil. And what happened? We deprived ourselves of these outstanding gifts. Now notice how that deprivation works. It's not that I lose my mind. You, you people might think I've lost my mind, but we met and we decided I haven't. Um, <laughs> Right? We didn't lose our minds. What did we lose in our minds? We lost the truth about who God is. And we lost that knowledge that could produce a beneficial effect. We lost the ability to rightly know God. And so the mind is not gone. We still have retained something of the image of God, but it's been broken. It's been shattered so that it doesn't work the way it used to. Um, the, the mind still exists, but what, it, what has happened to it? It's become darkened, right? He brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind. Now my mind doesn't work the way it was made to work. After the fall, it's been altered. There's a blindness there that wasn't there before. There's a darkness there that wasn't there before. There's a futility there that wasn't there before. Um, there's a distortion of judgment that's there that wasn't there before. Um, and and so, you know, some, so sometimes when we look around at, at the culture and some of the ideas the culture has about what's true and right and proper, and we say, you know, how could it have come to this that people think this is right or that this is good or that this is wholesome? It's because our minds don't work the way they should. 
There's a distortion there from what's true and salutary to something now that's dark, blind, futile, and distorted. That our our minds don't work as they were made to work anymore because of the fall. Um, What has happened to our will and to our hearts? Well, righteousness has been replaced by perversity, defiance, and hardness. Right? Where we where we once loved God and wanted to do the things that are pleasing in his sight, now we don't. Um, in fact, the, the nature of the fall is so much so that we say, now actually by nature I hate God and my neighbor. That's how broken my will and my heart are. Um, and then what about my emotions? Well, purity has been exchanged for impurity. Um, now people, you know, after the fall, people rise up in anger and kill each other. Um, They do all kinds of other things that they shouldn't do. And so what we see is we haven't lost our minds, our wills, our hearts, and our emotions. The image of God has not been completely erased, but it's been irreversibly damaged as far as we're concerned, right? Because if you're blind, how do you see your way out of your own blindness? And if you're unholy, how do you see your way out of your own unholiness, and if your emotions are impure, how do you restore them to, to purity? The, the damage that's been done is, is irreversible as far as we're concerned. We'll never be able to work our way out of it. Um, that's the extent of the fall. And that's why Paul says what he does in Romans 3. Is there any hope for people like that to see themselves out of their trouble? And he says, no. Right? No, you can't. There's no one righteous, not one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. We don't rightly know God anymore. Uh, We don't love him anymore. And we certainly can't live with him in the the way we used to. Um, That's that's been gone, and it's it's gone on account of our rebellion. You know, what, what made it from being so good to being so bad? We did. Um, that, that was man's fault. He was not forced to sin. He willed to sin. The devil instigated it, but man rebelled um, and lost those good gifts, forfeited those good gifts that God um, has given us. So we're still image bearers, right? That has not been lost. Um, but the image of God has been seriously um, and irreversibly damaged by us in a way that only God can fix. Um, that, that's how fallen we are. Um, and that fallenness of our first parents then spreads to the rest of the human race. Right? So it wasn't just our first parents that, that disobeyed and fell. That corruption spreads to the whole human race. And that's what we talk about in Article 2. Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone. Not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Now that's a pretty theologically packed statement, right, of how the corruption spreads. Um, and the place we would go to, to talk about that original sin that flows from Adam 
um, is Romans 5, 17 to 19, um, where Paul says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to, the con- led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Um, it's, it's, impor- it's important for us to understand the bad news so that we understand the goodness of the good news. Um, because it, it could be very common if someone has not heard the doctrine of original sin before to say, well, I don't like that. I don't like that Adam sinned and that is now my responsibility. Um, but you see, the way God has beautifully done things is he, he substituted for Adam as our failed covenant head, Christ as our finishing covenant head. So if you don't like the way it works in the fall, then there's no way for you to be helped in the saving work of Christ because he functions as a new covenant head the way Adam functioned. And just the way Adam brought ruin on the, on the whole human race, Christ brings salvation on all who believe in him. So we're actually glad for this covenant headship principle um, when it comes to salvation. Um, we don't like it when it comes to the fall, but, but we learn something very important about the nature of this corruption, that it wasn't just Adam and Eve who were like this, but they, they brought forth children who were like this. That this, this is the same thing that's been true of the whole human race. And we usually talk about this in terms of both guilt and corruption. That this is what Adam and Eve brought on the human race, is guilt and corruption. Adam, as the covenant head, represented the whole human race, and his failure, his guilt, passes to all of us immediately. Um, and so we are all guilty in Adam of, of these sins. That all flows to us as Adam, the covenant head. That's, what, that's, that's why Paul can say, through the one man's disobedience, death came to all. Um, through the one man's sin, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Um, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One man's disobedience made many sinners. Right? It's, it's his guilt that is the unholy fountain of everything else that happens. Um, and sin does two things. It brings guilt on us and it corrupts everything around us. Um, we sometimes talk of that in the way of sin and misery is a way of talking. We do things that are guilty and it creates misery. Um, and the lie the devil likes to, take, it likes to make all the time is to say you can have the sin without the misery. You can do what you want to do and not have the miserable consequences that flow from it. Right? Um, the devil always likes to say that, but don't believe the lie. Misery always flows from sin. They're inseparable. Um, guilt always leads to corruption. Um, guilt and corruption always go together. But what we say is, Adam's guilt comes immediately to me as a member of the human race. Every member of the human race has Adam's guilt. But that, that corruption spreads from generation to generation. Corrupt people bring forth corrupt children. Um, we, we see this terrible inheritance in passages like uh, Psalm 51.5. You know, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, or Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Um, there is not one. Um, man after the fall brought, brought forth children in his own likeness. Guilty and corrupt. Right? That's the really tragic thing about what happens is God made Adam his son in his image. Adam falls away and then Adam has sons in his image. Um, maybe you've, you've probably not done it yourself. Maybe you've heard of a, a parent with an unruly child and in a moment of frustration they say, I hope you grow up and have a child just like you. Um, Certainly none of you would have said that, but maybe you've heard somebody saying that before. Um, you know, and and that's, that's, that's the sad thing of what Adam got. He got children just like him. He'd been made a son of God in the image of God, and instead he got sons of Adam in his own image. Guilty and corrupt. Um, and, we, and we see that in, in the covenant line over and over again. Man after the fall brought forth children in his own likeness, of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. And the corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all of his descendants, not by way of imitation, but by way of the propagation of a perverted nature. Pelagians have said, you know, we come into the world, these, these bright, shining little children, and we don't even know what it is to sin. But what we do is as we're growing up, we're watching our sinful parents walk around and be sinners, and we learn to be sinners by what we witness, um, that we take after our parents in certain ways. Um, I remember when my brother first started preaching in seminary, got his license to preach and preach one day. I was sitting next to my sister in the pew, and my sister leans over at one point and goes, I'm freaking out because he does a ton of the same stuff that dad does when he preaches. Um, you can't help it, right? You just do things your parents do. Um, maybe, maybe when some of you became parents, you found yourself saying the thing to your children you said you would never say to your children because you hated to hear it. Um, you found yourself saying, because I said so, that's why. Uh, and you thought, I never was going to say that, but here I am. Um, a children, you know, a child in my father's image. Um, you know, we, we understand that, that, that thing, but what we're saying here in a very profound theological level is Adam was guilty and corrupt, and he brought forth guilty and corrupt children. That they didn't learn that by imitating. They didn't come forth pure as a clean slate and have their parents imprint their mess on them. You know, that the Pelagians were some kind of you know, pre-Freudians that you know, you're, you're just impressed on by your circumstances. No, they came out that way. And Reformed parents always like to point that out of their children. This kid didn't learn to be a liar. He was a liar as a little kid. Um, they learned really quick um, to be sinful. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't have to imitate anyone. It was in their nature. Um, and that's, that's the further problem is unholy people bring forth unholy children. Original sin is the unholy fountain out of which all other sins come. And no matter how much someone says, well, I don't like this notion. This seems to me profoundly unfair. Um, but you can always turn that around by saying, have you ever sinned? Um, and most people who understand sin from a biblical perspective can't say they haven't sinned. I mean, most people will say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, but you see, what, what that sin shows is that you're a member of Adam's rebellion. You have voluntarily enlisted in it. 
You're part of it. Even if you don't, you, you want to say, oh, I'm not part of it from you know, the heredity of it. But let's put that by the side. You still show that you're part of it by what you do. All we're saying is I can explain why you do what you do. Because from the beginning, we've been a guilty and corrupt people that have brought forth guilty and corrupt people. Um, we, we share that guilt because Adam was our covenant head and that corruption that he had and his wife had spread to all people. Uh, we don't learn that by imitation. That corruption flows. And it's been true of every single son of Adam except for one. Uh, and who's the one person that was not brought forth in guilt and corruption? The answer is always Jesus, right? Um, it's first day stuff. If you haven't gotten it yet, learn it. Um, apply it to your life. It'll help you. Um, Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the only one who is not brought forth in guilt and corruption. Why? Because his function is to come and be a second Adam. Right? He's brought forth in God's image with a true and salutary knowledge, salutary knowledge of who God is. He knows his Father when he comes into the world. And his will and his heart are filled with righteousness. Um, and his emotions are pure. And he comes into the world as a second Adam, except he doesn't come into a garden that's perfect. He comes into the wilderness of a ruined world. He has a much harder job than Adam had. Because Adam had all of that and a perfect world. Jesus comes in with all of that alone. The only person like this in the world. And how is he brought forth without guilt and corruption of his first parents? Well, the Holy Spirit overshadows his mother. So that the thing to be brought forth from her is holy. Because he's brought forth by the power of the Most High God, like the first Son of God was. Um, except that this Son of God is not only true and holy man, true and righteous man, but he's also God. Um, but he comes in like this, holy because of the overshadowing work of the Holy Spirit to bring forth a second Adam. Um, so there could be another man um, who... When the devil tries to instigate, he won't take the bait. When the devil tries to instigate him to rebellion, turn these stones into bread. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Didn't the Lord say he would bear you up? What does he come back with? I know. I have a true knowledge of my Father. I know that I don't live by bread alone. I know what His will is um, for obedience. That He's made it very clear, you shall not bow down to anything and worship anyone but the Lord your God. Uh, and when He's told, throw yourself off the temple, He says, no, I will not put the Lord to the test. He, you see how he exercises all of the gifts that he's been given by his father as a true man to obey his father. 
He refuses to rebel. Um, he walks in holiness and righteousness every day of his life so that he can be what Adam wasn't for his people, so that he can do set us on a new beginning where we can exchange the guilt and corruption that we inherit from Adam for the righteousness of Christ. Right? The, the holiness and blamelessness of our God becomes ours through faith. And then what does the Holy Spirit start to do? He starts to restore the image of God in us by giving us minds that now can begin to truly know things that we were blind to before. Um, so that the will and heart can be filled with the righteousness that was gone before. Um, so our emotions can begin to be purified from the impurity that they've had. This is the sanctifying process that God is working in our lives. Um, and so I know true things, and I'm still darkened. Um, I, I, my heart and will are for righteous things, and I have an old self that's still after the old impurity. Um, I have the new emotions that are purified by the Spirit, and I have the old emotions that still rebel. I'm, I'm at war. But what's, what's happening by the work of God's, God's grace in our lives? We're being purified. And there's a day coming when, when finally this will all be driven out. And there won't just be a restoration to the garden, which was good, it was good, but it was breakable. Right? It was good, but it was fragile. Um, but, but what is the life of Christ, which, which, which he now lives? It's incorruptible. It's indestructible. And that's the glory that awaits the people of God. Not a garden, but a city. We were moved into a permanent dwelling that can't be affected. We'll never have, be forced to move out and live east of Eden ever again will be brought into the holiness of God and be raised with a life like Jesus, incorruptible, indestructible. And that will extend to our minds and our wills and our hearts and our emotions. Those things will become incorruptible. Those things will become indestructible. And the fellowship we'll have will never be interrupted again because the last Adam has come who's overcome. Um, we sometimes call Christ the second Adam, but oftentimes we follow up and say he's the second, he's the last. Because he fully did what the first one couldn't do, and he brought the righteousness under which we will live. He's the one that enables us one day to be able to know that we'll be able to say, even if all the nations walk after their God, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Um, and so this is the beginning of understanding how God is working in the lives of his people, to take what we have ruined and to restore it. <clears throat> and because we can't do it ourselves, he has to do it by his grace. Um, and so this is sort of the beginning of understanding that. So are there any questions? <coughs> yeah, there were controversies where, where he was, and that's kind of what would happen, is students were saying, I'm not sure we're getting orthodoxy in the classroom. The question was, you know, if Arminius was so subversive, how did no one really spot it? Is that fair? Um, he never published anything in his lifetime. But when he died, they found his drawer filled with stuff that probably would have been controversial in his lifetime. But there had been questions raised. And 
you know, in not surprising places. Like when he began lecturing on Romans 7, students began saying, ah, I'm not sure this is right. Um, and then he was investigated, and they were like, I think he's okay. And then Romans 9, same thing. He was, uh, I'm not sure. Then he was kind of investigated and cleared. So it was a little unclear, and the remonstrants are much clearer when they come out and say what they're rejecting, the people who followed Arminius after his death and who actually filed wanting to say, we should be allowed to, to demur from these and still be considered within the confessions. And that's when the reform you know, convened the Synod of Dort to decide on those things and said, no, you can't. Our confessions require holding to these ideas. Um, so yeah, it's a little hard to know what, what he did in his life because he seemed to be questionable at times in what he was teaching, but he was examined by some pretty heavyweight theologians of his day, and they kind of said, we don't, as we talk to him, he's saying the right thing. So it's hard to know whether he was forthright or he was just sharp enough to know how to slide around. Um, but it's, it's hard to know, yeah, about him in his day because he trained under some of the best people and he was examined by, you know, Gomaris was another theology teacher at the time who taught him who was very orthodox and um, who was another, you know, authority. And he said, well, as far as I've, my conversations with him, he seems to be on track. But it you know, became clear from his students and from the things that they found that he'd written after his death that he was not on the right track. So, so it's hard to know. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, that's in, in uh, Head of Doctrine, article, uh, the first Head of Doctrine, the 17th article, we talk about the death of children of believers. And we say that they shouldn't doubt the salvation of their children because of the election and the covenant of God. That God's covenant is with believers and their children. Um, that when God made a covenant with Abraham, right, he said, I'm making my covenant with you and your children after you. Uh, and so we've said, because they're in a covenant relationship with God, and God has said the promises for them, they're holy, um, that we should not despair of, of the salvation of our children who die in infancy. That's as far as we've been willing to go as Reformed people in terms of saying, yes, children are born as, as children of wrath, as Paul says, we're all by nature children of wrath. Um, and so believers, of, believers should not despair of the salvation of their children who die in infancy. But that's as much as we've technically been willing to say, we would say, you know, God, God is able to do with his things what he will. Um, and so we can be certain about those who he said, he's said certain things about, but we shouldn't presume on things he's been silent about. So I wouldn't want to take that, that teaching that says, you can be sure that if your child dies in infancy, they go to heaven because God's covenant is with believers and their children, that they're incorporated in that covenant, that that's the reason for us not doubting their election and salvation, because God has said they're holy. Um, not by virtue of their nature, but by covenant. Um, those who are outside, we don't know whether God has chosen to put his love on them or not. So we, we, we're better off being silent as to that because there are examples in Scripture where God has said, you know, wipe out this whole family, but that one's found favor with me. But that's in the mystery, the mysterious providence of God and his ability to have compassion on whom he'll have compassion and have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. 
So we should be careful about not speaking beyond God's word. Um, and so I would be reluctant to say anything decisive about, because people have gone, gone the whole gamut and said, well, God saves all children, not because they're innocent, but because that's just as an act of his kindness. Um, people who've tried to say, you know, there's this place where children go um, that's neither really heaven or hell. It's kind of a, a sort of a third place. Um, and then probably some hyper-Calvinists have said, well, you know, if you die and you're by nature a child of wrath, you just go to hell. Um, well, I think that is more than God's word says and we should be careful about. We don't, you know, I usually, when people ask me about salvation issues, well, and dear, but I usually try to say to them, I don't have the book of life. I don't have a book of life. I can look, I can look it up. Um, and unless, unless God has said clearly in his word what, what happens, I think we're better off remaining silent. Um, so that's, I think, as much as I can say about that. But we're out of time, so.